coercion and sexuality in society. These are the topics for the Frankie Files. I'm Frankie Tease, your host, and I'll continue to focus on my own family story as well as news and recovery info for those who've survived, especially the adult children of cults. New each Tuesday. See FrankieFilesPodcast.com for more. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 45 of Frankie Files Podcast. I'm Frankie Tease. First Tuesday's always about coercion. This is no exception. For today's insight into a long, coercive indoctrination into a cult spanning years, including a harrowing escape, as usual, we're joined by Australian investigative journalist Tim Elliott. He's got the accent and the looks to run at the top, but this guy hasn't a shallow bone in his body. We talk about his work on 12 tribes and other topics, including chilling comparisons to the film Midsommar. If you've seen that, you're going to like this. He's introducing us to a podcast he's completed recently called Inside the Tribe. It's a high-quality production of his years-long reporting on a couple who were inside in story form. He's a long-form writer, after all. There won't be any spoilers in this episode, but a caution for discussion of the crime events involving an untold story and babies in Australia. Tim Elliott is a decades-long investigative journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald in Australia, whose work is cultural and social. Do check that out. And his new podcast is called Inside the Tribe, now streaming everywhere. We conquered the time zone to bring you this really concerning story, about an international spiritual community who is prolific with their yellow deli and other businesses, which we'll learn about. It's just not what it seems. And he's been following them since 2007. It's my pleasure to introduce to you Tim Elliott of Sydney Morning Herald in Australia. You're listening to The Frankie Files, frankiefilespodcast.com. Well, today we are so happy to talk with Tim Elliott all the way from Australia. After two hit and misses, we got you nailed down. 17 hours time difference, no big deal. But thank you so much for being on the show, Tim. No, thank you, Frankie. Thanks for having me. It's fantastic. We could finally talk. I'm dealing with a serious journalist from Sydney Morning Herald, Tim Elliott. Let's talk about your journalism. Yeah, I'm a senior writer with a magazine called Good Weekend, which is the Saturday magazine for the Age newspaper in Melbourne and the Sydney Morning Herald in Sydney. And we write about current affairs, politics, profiles, uh, you mm. name it, um, and we have about a million readers in print and online every every week. So, so you do get quite mm-hmm. a bit of exposure, and it's a lot of fun. 
I bet. Um, how many years have you been doing that? Oh, God, I've been doing that now for about 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I have also worked overseas doing freelance uh, stories in Iran and Sri Lanka and all over the shop. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. so I sort of used to get about a bit. So I've got family now, so it's a little bit harder. Okay. Okay. Yes, that's nice to hear. Um, now, did you have any contact with religions or cults as a young person? No, I didn't, but I was sort of always interested in religion. Um, I went to a school uh, that was Church of England in Sydney. We copped a fair bit of religion there, but I never really believed. And But it did still fascinate me that people um, were who were seekers and who were, you know, looking for the truth found themselves attracted to um, religion and also to fringe groups such as cults. It was something that always interested me. And when I got into journalism, I sort of pursued that a little bit. When did cults come on your radar? I was working uh, for the Sydney Morning Herald in 2008. And I got a call from a man called, uh, and I was doing some investigative pieces. And um, I had sort of touched on the issue Mm -hmm. of deprogrammers, people who help get people out of cults, as you would know. Um, and I got a call from a guy called Matt Klein, an Aussie guy called Matt Klein, who said that he'd been a member of a group called the 12 Tribes in the late 1990s, and he'd almost lost his entire family to them, so his three three little kids. He managed to get out. He managed to escape. Uh, he was in Canada. They'd sent him to Canada. He managed to get out, come back to Australia, but in the process he lost contact with his wife, and um, something about his story really, uh, really affected me, uh, touched me. Because I think it was because of the, the, her decision, the mother's decision to abandon her children for the cult. And that was just really sort of sad and quite powerful. And I sort of, from that moment, I just found myself more and more interested in this group called the 12 Tribes. And so I pursued them ever since pretty much. Oh, my goodness. So I'm talking to the guy who knows a lot about 12 tribes. 2008, wow. There's a lot to learn Uh about every group. and We haven't introduced 12 tribes to Frankie Files podcast, so I'm really happy to have you because you're going to give us not only a direct story, but some of their um, ideology and things that you've learned along the way. Let's start with, let's start with talking about the podcast. This podcast is great. Inside the tribe, you're following a couple, Mark, recruited and indoctrinated in the 12 tribes. So so essentially I came across them, Mark and Rose, through Matt. Um, and Mark and Rose are an Australian couple, young Australian couple who had just returned from overseas, and I don't want to spoil the podcast too much. Mark and Rose um, had returned to Australia, Sydney, to live. They'd been overseas for a while. They were in between kind of two worlds, right, from returning from overseas and being in Sydney mm-hmm. trying to find some work and re- hook up with some friends, make new friends, that sort of stuff. They were at a sort of open-air festival in Sydney and Mark went, you know, there's music playing and uh, bands and food stalls and it was all, you know, beautiful and lovely. And Matt, uh, Mark went for a walk um, just to check out the fair. 
and a woman walked up to him and said um, she had long, long flowing hair and, and uh, suze pants and um, cotton flowing loose pants and she looked really hippie-ish. I think you need a home to mark. And that really struck a chord with him because he kind of did at that time. So he's like, oh, right, okay. And she was from the 12 tribes. He didn't know that. And that's where it all began. And they ended up spending 13 years in this group and getting, you know, having a child in there. And basically they got stuck down into an abyss of horror and bizarre ritual. And a lot of times, like you say, in this encounter, it's just an innocuous phrase or something to catch your attention at a very public event. Yeah. So harmless. And then you go to a social event and it looks really fun. You feel things. It's fun. It's beautiful. They, you know, the whole love bombing thing, they made him feel fantastic. And right. like he'd found something that was unique and where he could fit in and belong and where their family could grow up and in sort of harmony and uh, working with other people mm -hmm. for each other. And to them at that stage in their lives, it was very appealing. They, they were quite idealistic and they went all in, much to their mm -hmm. regret later on. The Frankie Files. Let's talk about the ide ideology of um, 12 Tribes. It's, it's Christian, right? Yeah, it's a funny mix between Christianity and Judaism. When you join, you're given a new Hebrew name. It's a millennial cult. They essentially believe that they're trying to recreate the world of the Christian world as it was in the first century AD after the Romans, after Christ was crucified. It was just a bunch of, basically a bunch of apostles and hardcore believers wandering around the world, um, forsaking everything and trying to do their best by each other. Right? So very simple core beliefs um and so they are trying to recreate that getting away from the outside world uh all the temptations in the modern world uh they don't believe in television or radio newspapers uh internet all that sort of stuff and they try and isolate their believers as much as possible which is probably a very common thing with cults they believe essentially that they are preparing for the end times which uh, as you would know, is not um, uh, not uncommon. But they, what's different with them is they believe they're raising an army of 144,000 pure male children who oh. will go out on the Day of Judgment and hopefully uh, and do battle with Satan and hopefully prove triumphant. Uh -huh. So apocalypticism, sort of like the Mennonites and Jehovah's Witness, the world is going to end, but also raising a male army of 144,000, which is a biblical number, right? Okay. Yeah, they believe they have to be very focused, uncompromising in their approach to raising this army of young children who will be strong and super disciplined and able to defeat the forces of evil. They exert extremely intense discipline on their on their children. This is one of the most controversial elements of the cult. They believe in uh, corporal punishment, like vicious mm. corporal punishment for mm. any misdemeanor on the part of the mm. children. So mm. if the kids don't uh, respond on the first command, if they don't do what they are told immediately, 
uh, and to the letter, right. they will be beaten with a rod. And that's to encourage total obedience and discipline in the children. So this is one of the things that's got them in, got them in trouble with authorities all around the world, including okay. the FBI and the States, uh, German authorities and uh, Australian, Australian police um, here. So uh, mm-hmm. it, it's, a very, it's a very dangerous, coercive, uh, high-control mm-hmm. group. You say locations around the world. How many? Lo- oh God, it sort of shifts a bit because sometimes they their communities don't work out in certain parts of the world, or they get thrown out as they were in Germany. Um, they were thrown mm-hmm. out in Germany essentially. Um, mm-hmm. So Argentina, Brazil, Australia, the States, um, Spain, yeah, lots of lots of different countries actually, and it's a small group, but they're they're sort of. They're everywhere, really. They've been sort of all over the place, and they're very—they're actually quite successful. And they operate quite a few businesses. They operate a deli and a cafe called the sort of a franchise called the Yellow Deli, all around mm-hmm. the world. You can find the Yellow Deli; it's their kind of brand, which is all very cozy and comfortable and attractive and rustic. When right, you walk and in. the Yellow Deli is vegetarian and vegan, and I, if I recall, and it doesn't disclose that it's connected to twelve tribes. Of course not. And the funny thing is that, and they also have the common ground, uh, common sense uh, bakeries and cafes and all sorts of stuff around the world. And they operate Mm -hmm. soap factories, demolition crews, building Mm -hmm. construction companies, uh, you name it. They're they're quite quite industrious. And one of the reasons they're industrious is because they get their members to work for free. So the, the members don't receive a wage. And they, in quotes, volunteer their labour, uh, even though they are, uh, by the time they're doing that, they're not in a position to make a free decision. So, you know, this group exerts extreme control over them. So, um, Now, Tim, I've seen pictures and they live usually, and you'll have to correct me on, you know, how it varies on location, but it seems like it's like in a wooded area. In Australia, they live in this beautiful, they have a wonderful farm on the edge of Sydney. Okay. Um, called Peppercorn Creek Farm, and it's a lovely place. You know, we've been out there. We tried to convince them to talk to us, mm. and um, it, you know, this is a large place. They have sheep, goats, yeah. farm, um, uh, a little creek running through the property where they baptize uh, their members. Several buildings, outhouses, um, sheds, all sorts of stuff, and fields where they garden. So it's really a very successful um, established mm. area. And, yeah, it's usually on the outskirts of town where they can Mm -hmm. buy a lot of land for a relatively little amount of money out of public view, yeah. And this group's managed to to stay off the radar, which is really fascinating. I can't, you know, everybody I talk to is like, even in Sydney, they're like, um, oh, yeah, you know, we... We've been to that cafe because they so they they operate a uh, their cafe in Katoomba. What happens is that I've okay. I've been contacted by people who say, "My God, you know, like, I, I'm just getting a funny feeling from this group mm. that operate this cafe, and I've heard some really disturbing things about the group, and I think you should." I, and then I googled them. I discovered who they were and googled them, and I came up with your name, and you've done a lot of writing about them. <laughs> Because one of the one of the impetuses for me to look into the group again and do the podcast was that in Sydney they had been they had been caught burying the bodies of stillborn babies in the bush 
on their on their bush property on their rural on their farm. Uh, it's very disturbing, and some people, when they heard about this, were shocked um, and saddened. So they got in touch with the police. There's an ongoing investigation into that, and so uh-huh. that was one of the impetuses for us um, to look into them again. Um, I'm guessing they don't encourage outside medical care. Uh, no, they they try to avoid outside medical care. They, for one thing, it uh, it costs money. They're not too keen on spending money. Right. Uh, it's part of their whole isolationist ethos, okay. um, which goes back to the fact also they don't want to be under, they don't want to come into uh, under public scrutiny. They don't want, for okay. example, if you went in as a woman and you were in labour and you were having big difficulties and they found mm-hmm. out that you hadn't been looked after in your uh, in lead up to your to your birth, then there might be uncomfortable questions asked of the group, and so they right. try to, such as you know, have you been feeding this woman properly? Has she been getting rest, or had, and all that sort of stuff? They don't want to be placed under any scrutiny, so they basically avoid any medical care. And some of the kids have serious medical problems, whether they be psychiatric or dental care, all sorts of stuff around the world that we've heard of. That they don't go to the authority, don't go to medical services for it's just mm-hmm. it's bizarre. And that is one of the biggest concerns about colds in general: the kids. And the people who pay the biggest price are usually the women and children who are more vulnerable. Do yeah. um, placed at the bottom of the ladder. I mean, in the in the twelve tribes, it's much like I believe it's much from what I know of. The Amish um, women are very much subject to uh, the headship of the household, which is always a male. So um, they are pretty much second-class citizens and, yeah, they're treated as such. So I see because if the man is very special, he's he's going to be trained to be one of the 144,000. So everyone can support that mission. Yeah, he's part of that mission of raising his own, his own child. Either he's going to be him, or or his usually uh-huh. his children. But yes, his right. men are, are the very much the uh, exemplars yeah. of the community and have to be yeah and are treated as such. And I don't know if you've ever seen the film Midsummer. <gasps> yes. Oh my god! Because this what? to me is the best cult documentary out there, but it's billed as a horror film. But yes. to me, it's, it's, it's everything. It's- it reminded me so much of a cult and okay. you're right. It, it seemed like uh, people were treating it like some sort of um, psycho, um, psycho spiritual kind of, thriller and horror movie mm. but in fact yes it pretty much exactly describes how a cult operates doesn't it? it it to me and i was you know 12 years as a young person age 8 to 22 so it was like to me yeah everyone comes in and when you come in you get absorbed in where can you best be used depending on your skills your age your your gender boom you're processed in you know You're listening to The Frankie Files, frankiefilespodcast.com. Now, you had close contact as an investigative journalist with Mark 
and Rose. How much time did you spend with Mark and Rose to get this story for the podcast? Well, goodness me, um, a long time over the years. <laughs> I did a feature story about them in 2013 or 14 and just after they they managed to get out and they were still pretty traumatised. They hadn't really processed a lot of the stuff but they were really keen to Mm -hmm. talk because they had had Mm -hmm. such a horrible time inside and they wanted to expose this group. And after Mm -hmm. I got the message in 2021 or 20 from a, a woman, this woman who told me she was worried about babies being buried, in the, in the bush, I got onto Mark and Rose again, and I said, "Have you heard about this?" And as and then I remembered actually one of the features of the story that I'd originally done on on Rose was she had had a stillborn baby, and she'd had to bury it uh, in the bush. So she'd been part of all of that. The diet there and the medical care is very poor. What they do is they offer, they have, they're growing fantastic food, but they give most of the food, the really lovely food, to the public. They sell that at their cafes because that's their shop front, quite literally. That's the Disney uh, shop front of the group, all lovely dolphins <laughs> and rainbows. But within the group, they eat terribly and their medical care is non-existent. So a lot of the women have, have experienced trouble giving birth. Um, they give birth to children who are unhealthy or they have stillbirths. Don't want to register those stillbirths um, often because, again, there would be questions asked about why there are so many stillbirths in this community. So they often just get rid of them and they bury them in the bush without registering their deaths. It's Terrific. terrible. And like in the Midsommar film, remember when they pulled back the curtain to reveal the leader? A mongoloid child who had been um, inbred for multiple generations in this, who'd lost his mind. And whatever he wrote or said was now the new cult law. You know, you've spent extensive time researching this. So my next one was to focus on the leadership because I find that they're all so crazy. They're all so imbalanced, sort of like this Midsommar situation where you find out, you pull back the curtain. Oh, it's just a crazy person who made up a bunch of stuff. What? You you talked about the ideology. (laughs) You talked about the ideology, but who are the leaders? Okay, the group started in Chattanooga in Tennessee in 1972, and it was begun by a guy called Eugene Spriggs, who was a pretty charismatic, good-looking um, high school football star, uh, worked as a, uh, in a carnival, worked in a, as a carnival barker. He uh, had worked in a carpet factory, managing carpet factory that his father worked in. He had been a school guidance counsellor and also he'd been in the army. So he'd really been around and had a lot of life experience. He was walking down, he was also a deep, deep Christian. He was walking down a beach in uh, California in Santa Barbara and he had a revelation where he believed that God um, was talking to him. This is in the early 70s and told him he was... Um, destined to uh, start a new ministry uh, that was 
outside the bounds of established religion and that answered to nobody and that he was basically the conduit to God. Mm. So he started recruiting young kids and he was very successful because his ministry was just held in a house in Chattanooga. It was very informal. They used to have mm. rat nights and sit around talking and eating uh, in a communal setting and it was appealing to young people because it wasn't all, uh, it wasn't starchy and um, Mm -hmm. it wasn't really the adult church they'd grown up with, uh, say, with their parents and so it was very attractive. Mm -hmm. And from there he just kept on finding young uh, young people who who were attracted to the message he was selling and... Mm -hmm. He kept on going, got bigger and bigger, and as it went along, you're right, a little bit like the um, inbred uh, <laughs> child <laughs> in that movie, um, mm-hmm. the messages became more and more garbled and more and more indulgent, mm-hmm. and uh, his mm-hmm. teachings began moving away from the teachings of God and more into his own idiosyncrasies and hang-ups personal hang-ups about whether it be diet or child raising and it got weirder and weirder and Mm -hmm. basically it's that's how it morphed into what it is now Uh now there's oddly enough eugene spriggs whose cult name was yonek um hebrew name was yonek he died in in during covid he got COVID and died. And at the moment, the group is in a really uh, interesting period of change, of flux. So I think they're hard to know exactly what's going on at the moment because you don't get access. But from people we've talked to, there's a bit of a bit of a power struggle between mm-hmm. some of the senior elders. And I believe that Bob Racine, a man called Bob Racine, is uh, calling a lot of the shots now. He, uh, he's actually currently in Australia trying to prop up the community here because I think that the death of Yonek precipitated a kind of uh, crisis of faith among among a few people in the group. Um, and so he's travelling around and he's trying to shore up support. So, so you don't see any slowdown or anything? Uh, they go through periods, look, they go through periods, the group, and have always done of... <laughs> of you know uh shrinkage expansion mm-hmm. um contraction mm-hmm. you know where they lose people for one reason or another a lot of um adherents uh drop out or they pick up more i think it's much like any movement you uh it goes through periods of high popularity and disill and then disillusionment and so it's been going through that a bit at the moment i think it's hard to say but i think with this in this new period i think there'll Mm -hmm. be a few people dropping out i think there'll be a few people leaving if they can Mm -hmm. but again great time to get word out yeah exactly maybe we can encourage some people to look elsewhere yeah yeah don't look up no look up yeah (laughs) look up look up look up please look up we've been waiting for you um wow okay your extensive research is blowing my mind with all that you've seen, and this is not specific to Yellow, to uh, 12 Tribes, but to cult thinking in general, which they display, 
Why do you think it's so popular throughout time? Cults in general always find a place, no matter what changes we see in society. Boom, cults are there. Why? Why? Because I think uh, for much the same reason that mainstream religion exists, really. I mean, there's um, this inherent human need to belong to a larger group, to, to fit in, to find people who accept you and love you. And... And when you cults offer that big time, don't they? They, they really uh, they mm-hmm. offer one of the one of their great attractions is that they offer people a sense of belonging and community. Where where on the outside world, they those people otherwise might not have that. Um, people are uh, at almost everybody at one stage in their life goes through periods of vulnerability and and uh, are looking for a different way of living. And at the moment, I think that's particularly true. Uh, anybody, if you look around, you, you know, there's, there's a, <laughs> there, the world's not in a great place and the world mm-hmm. hasn't been in a great place for, for almost since it was created. Uh, well, since humanity's been around. <laughs> um, but this is particularly scary. I mean, you know, the climate crisis is particularly uh, concerning mm-hmm. and it's an existential crisis that appears to be largely beyond our control. So, and then there's, of course, there's wars, economic trouble, um, COVID mm-hmm. plagues. I mean, it's a big period in human history, right? That have, have a lot of, has a, a lot of people questioning their place and their sense of safety. What's going to happen? What's going to happen to the world? So at the moment, I think cults are particularly attractive for that reason. Well, yes, I can really see what you're saying there. And also, it's funny how you started because (laughs) we haven't been in a good place from its inception. Yeah, apocalypticism is an idea that was sold pre-Jesus. It was scaring everybody back then. Everyone's, the world's going to end in the year 100. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Watch out, we're getting the 100. Yeah, um, and the Mennonites even did the Great Disappointment, eighteen hundred, or I forget when what year it was, but it's like when it didn't happen, they said, "Oh God," and they named it the Great Disappointment. Really? Did you? Yes, and, and you can Google that. It's the Mennonites, which are the puritanical folks tend to use only. Um, as Joseph Zimhart, um, one of the cold experts, says, he they use the. Um, they use revelations and they take these quotes and they take them out of context. And I'm reading this great book called All You Wanted to Know But Were But Didn't Think You Could Ask. Devega Garki are the authors. But um, they go through apocalypticism through time, multiple religions. And I dare say it is popular. <laughs> Why do you think it's popular? Tell, tell me about your. The apocalypticism? Yeah. I really think it's popular because it immediately trips your fear. Oh, my gosh. What are we going to do? Okay, let's band together. It's the stupidest, simplest. You know, like, okay, like a girl is thinking about a guy. And they're in high school. And they go somewhere and they have a guy they know. Uh, uh, This guy has him come up and pretend to attack him he goes i got you honey she's like you saved me that's such a great analogy you scared me oh you saved me 
It's like, first yeah. you scared me, though. Don't you want to disclose that you also scared me before you saved me? Or is this relationship going to be based on a total falsehood? Number two in Colts. Total falsehood. But how do you think we can, as humans, curtail this extreme behavior? We do have a, a habit of wanting someone to be in charge, okay? So then that person's head gets huge, and they go excessive or extreme, and look how much I can get people to do, right? But how you've been watching this, you've been studying this at close range on your podcast. I haven't listened to all of it, but it's totally amazing for going into detail um, nice, high-quality sound, too, might I add. Um, so to how are we, as society, going to curtail these extreme beliefs? Because I don't think it's just religious. It can be political, too. Extremism, like you say, happens when people agree on things, and it can get extreme because then they close the group in and section everyone off. Everyone else is the enemy, and we are right. Okay, you found your people, but you don't have to kill everyone else. <laughs> how are we gonna? <laughs> how are we gonna curtail? You know the traffic, and even in twelve tribe views exposed to us just here today, malnutrition, neglect of kids, just all in the name of uh, the dollar to keep twelve tribes going for the end times. Something's fishy there. Something we need to continually um, focus on and make a priority is teaching critical thinking. Uh, so in school and just in society and uh, make critical thinking and the ability to think for ourselves more of a priority uh, in public discourse. You'll see even with what has happened with um perhaps um, Trumpism or Jaya Bolsonaro in Brazil. Mm -hmm. um, people are attracted to strong, strong man figures who provide a sense of security and leadership, right? They make complex issues yes. simple. The right. world's not like that. So we need to teach people from a young age to think critically and examine their beliefs and the beliefs of others and the, and the answers that people are giving them. So they go, well, actually, you know what? I don't think... I don't think what um, that leader is telling me is particularly, that doesn't really, it's a very handy, convenient answer to my problems, but really is mm -hmm. it, does it really ring true to me? Is it all too easy? I think the same thing goes for cults. You know, if someone's offering you something that sounds too good to be true or is, um, uh, offers you something, an answer that's very simple to, to life's complex questions, then think about it a bit more. You know, you need to examine examine your beliefs and the information you're being given, whether it be by authority or by a religious group. So if something sounds too good to be true, it probably is? Yeah, yeah it's like anything else. It's like the world's a really complex place and, yeah, you want to belong and you want to have friends and a sense of community, but uh, you don't want to lose your independence or your ability, your critical faculties at the same time. So you always need to be alert to that. Question your own beliefs as well. Are they logical? Do they make sense? Do they stand up to scrutiny? I think that's a really important part too. Said one of the very few investigative journalists who are left in our time.
Thank you, Tim Elliott, for being here today. No, thank you so much, Frankie. It's been fantastic talking to you. You're listening to The Frankie Files, frankiefilespodcast.com.